Hello and welcome to LPO Offstage. I'm Yolanda Brown and this is the podcast where I'm joined by members of the London Philharmonic Orchestra to chat all things classical music and often more. Today we're going on another deep dive about a specific piece of music and this time it's Dmitry Shostakovich in the hot seat, his 10th symphony. I'm joined by principal trombone player Mark Templeton, piccolo player Stuart McElworm and violinist Lasma Taimina who will help me unpick this dramatic work. Welcome back, Mark Stewart and Lasma. Hello. Morning. Hello. Let's just start with a very general description. How would you describe Shostakovich's 10th symphony in one word, Stuart? Epic, basically. I like that. Good. Lasma? It's a very difficult question, but I guess for today, torment. Oh, nice. And Mark? (laughs) Deep. So all of these are very intriguing words, which is great. There's a great setup for our podcast. Let's talk about the music first and foremost, actually. Lasma, how does Shostakovich write for your instrument? Well, that depends. I mean, we spend a lot of time playing just long notes in pianissimo and those can be pages and pages of it. And it's absolutely impressive music and truly scary. Despite just having a long note, it's still quite a thing to do and just to be in the middle of the orchestra. But then like, possibly one page later or maybe next moment, it turns into this complete disaster. Like you're trying to coordinate your bow and your fingers and it's just too fast and the notes all, are all over the place. And so, I mean, we get everything. It, it can be really difficult and it can be just a long note, but it's not easy to play a long note in a string instrument, as we know, things happen. Absolutely. And so when you're sort of going through all those techniques, does it feel like you can understand why he's making you do this with your instrument? You know that you're contributing to the picture he's trying to create? Yeah, absolutely, at least. So it, you can't play Brahms-like long note. It has to be because in Brahms, you would add some vibrato, it would be very beautiful. But in Shostakovich, it has to be scary with a little vibrato, a very specific kind of sound. So it has to scare you truly when you're listening. And it has to be sometimes so quiet that uh, when you're sitting in the audience, if you breathe, it might be too loud already, you know. So you really have to focus. But yes, when you have the fast bits, like, for example, the second moment of the symphony, 10th symphony, usually when I listen or when I play this piece, it feels like it's a, it's a chase. Somebody's chasing after you. And it's really, really fast, sometimes too fast. And it's very difficult to just, you, you just spend many hours learning it. You're just trying to chase your fingers, actually, in reality. But it gives the impression to the audience that there is something happening, something's running after you or from something. I'm really glad you said that, actually, Lesma, because sometimes, you know, especially in different styles of music as well, you pick up a chart and think, right, what, what do I aim for with this? And if you see sort of pages and pages of long notes, you think, yeah. oh, gosh, it's going to be a boring one. But actually, it is about the texture and what is it trying to say? It's so much deeper than the length of a note or how many notes you're playing. So that's really refreshing to you say that. Mark, how does Shostakovich write for your instrument? He likes loud. And when we kind of take the, the big themes, like when we take the DSCH theme towards the end of the scherzo, the second movement, the trombone's coming through the middle of the texture and it's not, it's not really high in the tessitura, it's just like in the, in the middle. So it's kind of really kind of forceful.
this symphony is not as big as some of them, like uh, six or seven uh, are for trombone. And there's quite a lot of percussive things that we have to do where it's a lot of bite and grunt rather than anything pretty. Shostakovich symphonies do tend to be a bit of a smash in the face, lip-wise and you know stamina-wise, and this doesn't have loads of moments like that. The second movement for me is kind of where a, a lot of the action is. There's a really nice thing with the first trumpet with the which is just the two of us, and there's so much happening, but with the two of us playing basically nearly as loud as we can and pushing it through. And Stuart, I mean, the piccolo is so important to this symphony. How does Shostakovich write for your instrument? As a piccolo player, Shostakovich is like the biggest thing on your radar, basically. Not just this symphony, you know, he wrote 15 symphonies. All of them have really, really important piccolo parts. And I spend most of my life teaching these things to my students And also, it's obviously a very big part of my playing career, you know. He's somebody who I've been obsessed with from a very young age. My dad was a piccolo player, and he very early on introduced me to the concept of what a Shostakovich symphony is going to be like (laughs) if if you go into the profession, you know. He writes brilliantly for all instruments, but, you know, he especially writes an amazing piccolo parts, you know, and lots of... The biggest excerpts that you have to learn are from him. And what is it like when you then have to play it? I mean, even in the first movement there, you've got a duet between the piccolos. That moment at the end of the first movement is a very special moment. It's not easy for the other piccolo player because that's the only thing they do on the piccolo in the entire symphony. And they just basically have to pick up their piccolo cold and join me for that very lonely moment at the end of the first movement. But if you look at his scores, I have all the scores of all the symphonies. They just look so simple, actually, on paper. But yet, what they actually sound like is just magic. He was a genius. You last performed it in November with LPO's principal guest conductor, Karina Kanellakis, at the Royal Festival Hall. How was that performance? I mean, yes, granted, we'd come out of not being able to play together for a long time as well. But how was that performance in being back on the stage and playing this symphony in its entirety, Lasma? It was the first and the only time I played the symphony. So, yeah, <laughs> kind of premiere for me. But I really enjoyed it because one thing about Karina is that if you have time to look up, if you have time to look at her conducting and not just, you know, usually we kind of, we don't have really time. So we just see, you know, above somewhere there's somebody moving. But if you actually have time to look up, then you see that everything you need to know is in her fingers and hands. She has amazing technique. She doesn't need words to say things. It's all in her fingers, literally in fingers. It's just the movements, unbelievable. And I think she understood uh, understood the music really well. And uh, I truly enjoyed it because all these long, scary, quiet moments, I, th- I thought they were really impressive. And the fast ones were even faster than possible to play, but it kind of added to the anxiety of the, of the piece. Thank you. 
And we've learned here on LPR stage about sort of different conductors have their own approaches to the music. Stuart, what's Karina's approach to to this piece, especially because you've played it so many times, you must have heard different interpretations. Well, I'm just looking at my, my score here and I've got ah. every performance that I've ever played written in the back. When I was in the RPO, I, we did it a lot with Vladimir Ashkenazi and Yuri Tamerikanov. But I particularly remember this performance here with Bernard Hytink in 2000. And actually this concert with Karina was also a memorial concert for Bernard as well, because he had recently passed away and it was a big tribute to him in the programme and he recorded a lot of Shostakovich symphonies with the LPO. But what I really admired about Karina's performance is that she brought something a little bit different. It's very easy just to play these quite popular pieces in a very generic way, but I thought she paced it really well. First movement is actually quite slow and then it builds a lot of momentum And Mark, what about for the brass section with those passages that really come through? How have you experienced it under different conductors and have you been told to play in different ways for different interpretations? Well, uh, something that Shostakovich sometimes writes in trombone parts, there's one bit, kind of which which movement it's in, we're all in unison, really low down and grunty, and he writes fortissimo espressivo. When you're kind of like going... It's quite hard to think how you can make that sound expressive. Expressive. Um, <laughs> that sounded quite expressive to me. Thank you. I remember years ago doing some Shostakovich with with Bitchkov. I think Shostakovich five, I think. And there's the big trombone, bit bomb, Bobby, with massive orchestra, and it's three Fs. I remember the section really tearing into it, and him like saying, "No, no, no!" It needs to be espressivo, and it's like, how can we do that Ow. when we're all <laughs> blowing really, really, really loud raspberries that are accented in in three Fs and and like block chords like this. So some conductors kind of give me a bit of a hard time in that regard. Stuart, can you help me break down the DSCH motif, which is a recurring theme that comes through in the symphony? Well, it's basically his initials that are then transcribed to musical notes, you know. So it's a very personal motif of his name. How did he break it into notes? Because we don't have S and H. In German, I think, it translates into musical notes. Right. So, da-da-da-da. Those are his initials, you know, and that motif goes all the way through the symphony and it's hammered out by the horns right at the end. ba 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 but it's going all the way through the symphony. So it's a very personal statement from him. And obviously he invested himself in this piece very personally, more than in any any other of his symphonies. Do you know why that was? I don't, actually. I mean, he wrote the piece in 1953 and he'd been under a lot of pressure, pressure on him for some of the music he'd previously written. he always had a very tricky relationship with the establishment, shall we say, at that time in, in Russia. But I think this was his very personal expression of what he was as a composer. 
And Lasma, this is where we really do see the power of music. It's more than notes. It's even more than storytelling. With this, you know, it's some people think of the second movement as a portrait of Stalin, for example. Do you know some history about about this piece and, and where it comes from? As much as I know the Samuel Volko, who wrote the book Testimony that I read many years ago, He's kind of considered one of the Shostakovich biographers, but in reality, lots of musicologists would disagree with his statement. We can't really know if that's actually Stalin or it's something else. But I think we can definitely say that the 10th Symphony is a description of life under Stalin's regime, even if it's not Stalin himself as a person, but it's definitely life living in that regime, because starting from around year 38, it was known as a Red Terror and a Soviet Union also expanded. And that's an absolutely horrifying time to live. I mean, we know that most of his life during Stalin, Shostakovich kind of waited for that knock in the middle of the night at 3, 4 a.m. That's when the KGB usually came to pick up people and bring them away because then when they're sleeping and very, you know, they can't really react well. So they would just knock under your door and just break in at a time and take you away. So Shostakovich lived in that fear of persecution. Mm -hmm. He knew that it might happen. He did try sometimes to write acceptable music, meaning soundtracks, something that people would understand. But then from time to time, he would just break and he would write something truly revolutionary, unusual, something that Stalin would criticize and not, what Stalin would refuse to accept. And then the newspapers would be full of criticism and judgment. And Shostakovich, again, would feel in danger. I mean, I come from Latvia, so it's, as we know, it was occupied by the Soviet Union from middle 40s till 90s still. And um, that was the darkest period of our history. And um, occupation, it's terror. I know that there is a friend of his said that the symphony was already being underway in 1951. So it's mm. not written right after Stalin's death. It's during the time. I think that is when the creative and the artist and the genius of these composers really does come through because you can't just sort of write in in fantasy world all the time you know the the truth does come through and for you when you play this piece then mark what sort of personal connection comes through for you what do you identify uh, with it the way lasma shared for, for us well a slightly different opinion to lasma i mean for me i kind of try and let the conductor and and the audience kind of make the decisions of what in what understanding needs to be put on it i'm trying to deliver what's on the page and not get caught up in the emotion because I, I need to be focused because you know everything's pushed to the limits when we're at really high volume you know, yeah. it's a really high register and also just purely with in the nature of the wind section with with so many things happening and us with our individual lines having to not just play together but also slotting in with with everything my brain's too full <laughs> of of all that mapping and the construction of it to think in the moment about the emotional context as musicians in the orchestra we, we often after gigs we'll come off stage and, and talk about you know what we think about the conductor or the, or the piece of music and things like that and very often what we feel is very different to what the, the audience feel because they haven't gone through the, the same preparation as us they, they haven't had the same conversations about the music as us they um, haven't had the same problems as us I'm sometimes very envious of the audience sitting there and just having this fully formed thing kind of uh, thrust at them to be able to go oh yeah I like that and I like that <laughs> well it's for first violence a bit kind of sometimes easier because we are on top of melody at all times so we 
we are kind of, you know, the queen of the orchestra or something like that. So we just keep playing and everyone else is trying to adjust themselves to us very often. Obviously not when someone else is having a solo, but I mean, we have lots of solos, so we, we have a bit more time to think about the music because a bit less work to try to play together. That's why we just have more time on our minds sometimes. That is interesting, isn't it? How different sections of the orchestra would take away different emotions, elements, practicalities of, of the music. I think that's that's the great thing about this podcast. It really opens it up. And Stuart, how about you? I know you have a very personal connection with this symphony and you shared very openly, actually, on social media after your performance in November. Would you mind sharing that with us? My first real connection with Shostakovich 10 was when my dad was going down to the proms when he was a member of the BBC Scottish to play that symphony. And I hadn't really known it before that, but, you know, he showed me the score and he said, look, this is a really tricky one for the piccolo, you know. How old are you? How old are you, Stuart-ish? What, at that time? Yeah. Oh, probably, it was 1979. So I was 14. (laughs) Anyway, so I remember him going off and getting onto the train and going down on the sleeper from Glasgow to London. And then I listening on the radio and it was conducted by their then assistant conductor, a certain Simon Rattle. Oh, wow. <laughs> My flute teacher, who was the, the principal flute of the orchestra, was also playing, and he was very good at recording stuff on cassettes and everything. So, <laughs> so I still have a cassette of that performance, you know, and it's still an amazing performance and an incredible legacy of all those people that aren't around anymore, you know. Yes, yes, absolutely. In fact, Shostakovich actually came to the Edinburgh Festival in 1966 and the BBC Scottish played the Sixth Symphony with him in the audience. So my dad actually had to play one of his symphonies with him listening. That sparked a a lifelong obsession with his music. And I think that is the amazing thing about music and especially about orchestral music is how these performances are passed down or whoever played that part before you and you know how you're interpreting it and taking it on into the modern world there is something really poignant about that and Stuart not to delve any deeper and you don't have to go any further but how does it feel for you knowing that your dad has played those passages and now you're passing that on? Well I mean I'm basically playing the piccolo that was his Right, the actual piccolo itself has played. (laughs) It's a legacy, you know, that's what life is made of, you know, and I'm very fortunate to be a little part of that. What would you say is your favourite moment in the symphony and why, Mark? It would be easy to say the scherzo because scherzo is so good and I really enjoy the slotting in, especially when Andy's on the snare drum and he really drives it. And you yourself know, I mean, it's one thing that's that been blown up over the last few years is working at distance and, and, and timings and stuff. And when Andy's really piling that and it's all sort of slotting in, I love the energy of the, of the second movement, especially with, with, the, with the snare drum. I'd love to play that part. One of my 
my favourite bits is, I think it's towards the end of the third movement, where all of a sudden it feels like it goes into one with a and it's been driving, and all of a sudden the, the, the bass drops down, and it just goes, goes really sort of cathedralic. Yeah, you've got the score there, you've I know. You've got the score, it's going to go uh, check it out for you. Hang on. Uh, 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 uh. Oh, no, there it is. It's, oh, there it is. It's in, oh, it's not third movement, it's the end of the first movement. Sorry. Uh-huh. So it's in, towards the end of the first movement. I'll tell you where it is. It's just after figure four. 49. Lassima, for you, what's your favourite part or is there a favourite theme that keeps coming through that you're like, oh, there it is again? Well, I definitely completely love the first movement, the whole of it. It's a landscape. But when it comes to particular passages, I think third movement, the last few pages, starting with the satirical valse bit, ta-ta-tam, pa-pa-pam, when we go into valse and it's all over, the whole orchestra is playing regular, regularly the, the his initials in different instruments and different combinations. And then it goes, starts with that valse and turns into big drama and then it kind of calms, settles down and calms down and ends, you know, in a very scary manner. But I think that one, definitely. <laughs> And Stuart, is it even possible? I mean, I can see the the score there flicking through. Is it possible for you to pick a favourite moment? Not really, but (laughs) I mean, I think the first movement is his greatest symphonic structure. As Lasma just said there, it is a landscape. I mean, it's terrifying. It has every emotion that you can imagine in there. And he really takes you to the limits of what you can express in music, I think, you know. But I like the irony of, of a lot of what's in the last movement. Just from a practical point of playing it, it's nice to feel that you're getting near the end and you've survived again. And I love the triumphant DSEH motif in the horns at the end there, you know, and it's, although it's sort of like a triumphal ending, you're not really sure whether there's any real triumph there, you know, but he battled all the way through his life against incredible odds. the way that you described it as you know you get to the end it's like I survived and then Lassimer and Mark said yes we know what that means <laughs> we got there <laughs> triumph you, indeed actually 
You, you both mentioned the, the, the first movement. Actually, sorry, another one of my favourite bits, if I can have it, yes. is actually, it's, it's really, it's not very, it's maybe within the first minute or even the first 30 seconds. It's the first string chord when the bass drop sounds, go, that instantly goes from that kind of sweet chord to going to the minor and just goes really, really dark. It's just like, it's almost like there's this tiny, tiny, tiny speck of sunlight just comes through and then instantly it's, it's smashed straight away. And it's like, oh, the first time I heard that chord, I remember I had an LP that I went out and bought shortly after the prom performance that my dad did with Carrie-Anne and the Berlin Philharmonic. And I just remember that chord. And it's like, it's sort of... I remember the first time I went to Moscow on tour and we arrived there quite late at night. And it was dark, obviously. And then I woke up in the morning in this rather shabby hotel room, looked out the window and I just saw all these unbelievable sort of apartment blocks stretching into the distance and thinking, where am I? That chord is all about that. Wow. That's a good description. I can just imagine that. Yeah. Uh, we'll all be looking out for that first movement. Brilliant. Uh, now, I have a very quick fire question as we round up and you've shared so well and actually sparked my re-listening to this symphony in a new way, actually. And it's hearing your personal connections. Uh, I will be listening with new eyes and new ears. But yeah, very quick fire. If you could play another instrument in this particular symphony, what would it be? Snare drum. <laughs> I'm going to come back to you, man. <laughs> have another thing. <laughs> Lassa. Uh, I guess trumpet or gong, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Why? You know, when I was a student, still, somebody from London Symphony Orchestra String Experience scheme just gave me advice. If there is a mess in the orchestra, nobody can understand what the conductor is showing, just follow the trumpets. So <laughs> I've been kind uh-huh. of following that advice since then. And my brother played trumpet at some point. I'm used to the sound in the house. So, yeah, nice. I, I kind of love it. I just love the sound. Or the gong. I mean, the gong usually shows the coach has just one, possibly just one moment, but really impressive moment. Yes. So that would be me, maybe. <laughs> I like that. So I, I can see I see your personality coming through here, Lesma. We want to be front and centre, leading and, and heard. I like it. Good. <laughs> Gong and trumpet, you can have that. Mark, snare drum. back to you. Snare drum. <laughs> snare drum. Why? I think because it's got the, especially in the, the, the scherzo, which is that drive, it's just just because that, for that movement, it's just so simple in this the march rhythm. But then when it goes from in, into, obviously, the march, the fact that the, the meter changes and the pulse changes and the, the, the fact that the relentlessness of the drums of going through and then you've got these three bars dropped in and all, all of a sudden I'm hanging off what the snare drum's doing quite a lot, just bouncing off it. And also for kind of keeping, let me know exactly where I am. <laughs> like, 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 as I'm saying, you know, when, you, when, when, when it's a bit like, oh, you know, okay, fine, he's, he's going to be in the right he's place. He's got it. So, uh, so oh, 
maybe I, I would like to play it because maybe I want to be in control. I don't know, maybe it's my control freakery coming out. I don't there know. We go. We're really learning about each other today. I like it. Snare drum you can have. And Stuart, if you had to, just put the piccolo down, just for one performance at least, what instrument would you pick up? Horn. Well, the horn does have a, a lovely solo in the uh, third movement there, but why? I just think I'm a bit of a frustrated non-horn player, you know, and I did have a bit of a go at it one time, you know, but there's something really heroic about the instrument and, I mean, Shostakovich writes so well for it and it's possibly even more frightening than the piccolo part, actually, of Shostakovich <laughs> 10, the first horn part, so I wouldn't look forward to playing it, but... As you've asked the question, it's the horn. Well, an appetite for danger, Stuart, I'm, I'm taking away from <laughs> this conversation. I like it. Honestly, thank you all for sharing so wonderfully about this and, um, and sharing your personal experiences as well, because within all of this music, it does touch our hearts and it is within us. So thank you so much all for sharing. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. That's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Lesma Taimana, Mark Templeton and Stuart McElwam for revealing the ins and outs of playing Shostakovich's Symphony No. 10. Thank you for listening and do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage. I'll see you then. Hold up. 